You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a brand new podcast presented by us, Kane and Abel, two people with the exact same voice. Each week we will bring you news, views and in-depth interviews from the world of entertainment. So if you have an interest in magic, circus, variety, comedy or just listening to a good story, make sure you subscribe to Talking Tricks on iTunes and Podbean. I'm so excited for this week's guest. We cannot wait to play our interview with the amazing, the wonderful Charlie Caper. Charlie Caper in my mind is probably one of the best magicians in the world in fact do you know what actually i would say if i wrote a list of of the top 10 working magicians in the world charlie caper would probably be in it and that's quite an interesting and fun idea maybe on a future episode we'll put together our list of the top 10 working magicians in the world that'd be quite fun to do so i tell you what actually if you're listening to this why not share yours let's get going we can have a a listener's top 10 i'll do a top 10 kane you can do a top 10 kane's quite quiet at the minute um actually because he's preparing some fireworks for us because obviously this is coming to you monday the 5th of november so kane is sorting out the fireworks i'm recording this little intro tweet us at Kane Able Magic, hashtag Talking Tricks, with your top 10 list of the magicians working in the world today. We'd love to see them. And in a, in a few weeks' time, we will do our top 10 list. But we'll waste no more time in getting into it, ladies and gentlemen, with the amazing Charlie Caper. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us here on Talking Tricks now is Charlie Caper, phenomenal magician, performed all over the world. Also, a bit of a genius, really, when you see the kind of things he does with robots. But to kick us off, Charlie, how did this all begin for you? With magic, I was this weird... I was interested in memory technique as a child. And, uh, and I hung out, spent a lot of time at the library. And uh, a, there's a guy called Harry Lorraine who um, wrote a bunch of books about memory technique. And they also wrote books about magic. And then, so then by accident, I, I stumbled upon one of his magic books one day. One of the three magic books that existed at the Malmo City Library. Yeah, I just got that and I started doing magic. Well, what were the other two books at Malmo Library? It was one called, I have to switch to Swedish in my head. But it was one about card magic by uh, Dr. Jacob Taub, I think. And then there was one just called Close Up, which was by Elke Halbe. But yeah, he would translated it, I think. I don't know who wrote, like, I don't know what the original is. But the one, um, the one I learned the most from was The Magic Book, it was called. I think that's Harry Lorraine. It wasn't called, the, it, in Swedish it was called Selskaftsdrolleri. Yeah, it was a, the Swedish translation of it. Were you kind of the traditional child getting into magic there that you just read and read those books, took them out as much as possible and then kind of moved on to seeing where else you could could learn from? Yeah, it, it was kind of before the internet. So I I basically had those three books for 10 years of my magic career. <laughs> That's it. That's all I had. So I learned everything that was in those books really well. And kind of once you'd started learning those things, when did you first start plying your trade, performing in the public eye? I think my the first time I had a gig was like 13 or something. But I didn't do perform a lot. Until I became a street performer, which was much later, like I was 21 or something like this. So in that gap there, did you kind of t- to the traditional sort of route of, of studying at university and things like that? Or were you kind of always 
working towards hopefully being a performer? No, I studied at university um, random things. I don't have a degree in anything. I studied a lot of very, 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 extremely varied subjects. It's free to study in Sweden, so I just kind of did that a lot. And I applied it to the um, Swedish National Circus School as a juggler as well. And I didn't get in, and then I quit juggling. So before you quit juggling, were you kind of balls, clubs? Were you doing this sort of the knife act on the street? And kind of how many... All, all of those things. I never did juggling in the street. And I quit juggling actually before I ever started performing in the street. I tried to do street shows when I was like 15. And it didn't really work for me. I, I had never seen a street performer. So there was nothing to emulate or anything. So I tried a while and then I quit. Yeah, me and Ed actually came up and tried street performing for the first ever time at the Edinburgh Fringe, having oh, never right. seen a street performer before. So you can imagine how that went and how uh, the other streeties responded to us. How old were you then? We must have been about 19, I think. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah, so we'd done, we'd done a show outside and thought, that's it. We're ready to be street performers. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So if we go, um, well, talk to me about uh, your origins performing on the street. Kind of where was it in in Sweden that you were performing, and what kind of uh, act were you performing? I started in London. I um, I moved to London when I was like twenty. I got a job as a translator, and then I very quickly got a job for the same company doing uh, computer programming. And I had that for like one and a half years, and I got really tired of it. And, I, and, at the, and so by the time I decided to quit that, I had gotten to know a couple of street performers in uh, Covent Garden, most notably a friend of mine called Gary Stocker, who was really good. Uh, and so I, st- I was hanging out with him all the time. And uh, like every weekend, we would sit there and play chess and invent magic tricks and talk about life. And it slowly dawned on me that I spent all my weekends doing this. He spent every day doing that. So I was like, oh, maybe I should... So yeah, I, I quit my job as a programmer and, and, and went through, so I, and then I did two seasons in Covent Garden, basically. And anyone listening to this that's seen your work probably seen your, your cups and balls routine. So were you doing kind of the cups and balls close-up magic on the streets or were you doing the big circle shows? Um, I was doing kind of, well, close, I was doing small circle shows and I wasn't doing, the, my, my first decision when I started doing street shows was to not do the cups and balls. And so I did a whole summer of doing other things. And at the end of that summer, Captain Kino, who is a fantastic, legendary street performer uh, in Covent Garden, he came up to me and he was like, it's been so nice to see you develop as a, as a performer over this summer. It's, it's really interesting to see how, like, how you're developing this and... I think you should have these. You'll probably do great things. And he gave me a set of cups. They're still the cups I use today. They're really legendary. Like they, 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 I'm sure those cups have been through thousands of shows before I got them. And so he gave me those and I was like, oh shit, I guess I'm doing the cups, <laughs> basically. Anyone that's worked Covent Garden, I'm sure, has had similar conversations with Kino. He's a yeah. real, and there's a lot of kind of negativity around that area. He's a real positive yeah. guy. Well, Kino actually gave me one of the best advices of my performing career, or like... One of the things that I kind of stick to, which was after one of my shows, he came up to me and he was like, oh, it's, it's, it's nice to see your work and it, you're not very funny. But when I look at the audience, like they're all smiling when you're performing. And sometimes a smile is, is better than a laugh because they laugh at anyone that says something funny, but they'll only smile at someone they like. 
And I really I took that to heart, like, okay, I guess I'm not doing everything wrong. Yeah. So I've kind of gone down that route. That's a real keynote line. Uh, so who else were some of the other the buskers working at Covent Garden at that time? When it comes to magic, it was only me and Gary. And uh, on the like magic corner where we were performing, corner of James Street, there was only me, us and a couple of musicians. A musician called Brian Bruno was playing there. He's really great. I think he lives in Switzerland now. And then there was the people on the big piazza. So when you were in London doing, doing street shows by, by day, often breaking into the evening, were you, were you also kind of doing magic around London, doing the sort of traditional corporate work, or was it very much street and then still doing the, the office job, so to speak? Yeah, no, no, I quit the office job at that point, and I was very uninterested in corporate shows. I really wanted to be a street performer. I wanted to learn how to do street shows. So I remember I, I did like three, four, five street shows a day. Every evening I would take my stuff and I would go swing dance. In London at that time, probably still it was possible to go swing dancing somewhere any night of the week. And I, I did seven days a week I would go swing dancing. Did you notice a big difference in, in your show when, when you did start using those cups that Kino had passed down to you? No, it just takes time. In a way, I think it was bad that I started using them. I think it would it would have been even more beneficial for me to to do even more original thing. I reckon anything, any act, if you're a good performer and you you can kind of listen to your audience and develop things, any act that you're doing a thousand or two thousand times, it's going to be good. It doesn't matter what you start with because you're going to change it into something that works. Something that I find really inspiring when, when talking to you is, is your work ethic when it comes to practicing and rehearsing your show. I wonder, at that point, were you still working the show on the streets and then kind of going home and relaxing, or were you still going home and working and working on other parts of magic? Sometimes there's things you really want to work out to make them work. So I think it goes in cycles. Like sometimes there's stuff you really need to fix. I reckon that's, that's why the sort of just doing lots of shows is a great way to develop your act because if you're doing something and you're doing it basically the same show 10 times, there's going to be parts of it. There's going to be some part in it that starts to feel painful where it's like, oh man, I really need to change that. And then like the 10th time you feel that feeling where you can feel that the energy drops in the audience or something is not working or you miss something or like it's not, then you're like, okay, I, I have to do this now. And then you go and try to solve it. Yeah, it can feel fantastic when there's been that part of the show that just doesn't feel right, but you've got it in maybe for time reasons or maybe just because you're relying on it for something that comes later on. Just because it's always been there and you haven't felt a good reason to change it or it's just kind of been working up until then or or you have, you've been too bad a performer to notice up until then that it's not working. So how long were you kind of living in London for then? And, and what year are we at this point? I moved there sometime. I was definitely there during September 11. I remember that. And then I was, that was like my last, towards the end of my career doing computer programming. Uh, so right after that, I started street performing full time, basically. I'm interested to find out when you first kind of started doing other things apart from street shows. I went through festivals. I mean, I did corporate shows when I, through my teenage years, occasionally. But I was quite uninterested. I'm still uninterested in them, actually. Basically, I, I did two summer seasons in Covent Garden. And after that, winter was coming. And I kind of... By that time, I would gotten confident enough to kind of go, I guess I can make a living out of this anywhere. And I, so I booked around the world ticket. And I went on a 10-month trip around the world with my, the plan to live from doing street shows. 
And that trip ended up lasting for about eight years. So what were some of the countries that, that you visited and how did um, performing in, in each different country differ? It's really interesting. I performed in many, many countries. Now it's over 50. I basically traveled through, yeah, around the world, most of Asia, uh, Australia, New Zealand, the States, Canada, all of Europe. So you mentioned kind of getting on the festival circuit. Um, was it around this time then that you started writing venue theatre shows for want of a better term and, and started kind of pitching those to, to the festivals? Well, I kind of, my, my street show, after a couple of years as a street performer, my street show started becoming pretty good. And then I started being booked for festivals. And then I went through a bunch of years doing festivals quite a lot. I still do quite a few festivals, the ones I like. I'm very picky now, but um, there's a lot of festivals that I really love. And I often go back to them every three years or something. But real theatre work, I mean, and then I started doing my street show indoors. My street show has always been quite non-streety. There is no keeping people waiting. There is no hyping up the audience and trying to get them to clap for nothing. So there's none of the aspects of street performer that that's common in street performing that don't really work indoors. There's none of that in my show. So I could basically take my street show and move it indoors, and it worked really well. And then it was only, like, at 2009, uh, I won Sweden's Got Talent by kind of chance. And then I moved back to Sweden and got a theatre tour, basically. Let's talk about Sweden's Got Talent. It's, I'm interested to know what the perception of that was in Sweden, because here in the UK, as, as soon as the first Britain's Got Talent came mm. out, magicians were kind of painted as these, these clowns and these fools and were there just to poke fun at, and the judges were constantly saying how much they hated them. It took us a long time until we actually had some magicians that did well on mm. there. Did you have any hesitation going into Sweden's Got Talent and kind of what was your aspirations and desires and why did you go in to do it in the first place? Not really. I analysed it quite a bit. And my friend Johan Welton, who's a really, really good juggler, like amazing juggler, he was in it the year before me uh, and he finished second. And he lost to a, a kid singing called Sara Larsson, who was an amazing singer. Like an, an, a, you know, one of these incredible kids. She's now been like the opening act for Madonna and stuff. So she's now super famous, actually. Um, but I was there kind of being his, in Swedish, we call it a ballplank, like the, the wall that you bounce a ball against. Uh, he was, I was discussing his when he was in there with him. And I was there at the finals and I saw he was treated well by them. And I think the people that have been mistreated by these Got Talent shows, which are many, also are people that often haven't thought about what kind of circumstance they are going into. They, they haven't understood the format of the show, really. I spent a lot of time analyzing it. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to win. I just entered because I wanted to do a bit more work in Sweden so I could see my family because I was never in Sweden. And I figured, well, if I go in Sweden's Got Talent, I'll, I'll go to the finals, possibly, and then I'll be seen a lot, and I'll get five or six gigs a year in Sweden, and then the, then I'll have someone else pay for my flight to go visit my parents. Your routines, uh, which I think is still all on, on YouTube, your, you, yeah. your map to the final, which I've watched, were those routines that you were already working, or did you kind of create everything or the majority of the bits solely for that show? One I created from scratch for the show, one, I cut down a 10-minute act into a 1 minute and 53-second act. And one, I, uh, I actually also basically made for the show. So, yeah, I 
custom-built two acts out of three for it. What tricks did you do? The one I cut down short, I did the cups and I cut it down from a really long to like one minute and 50. I had to cut away a cup. I took away a cup from the cups and bowls for time reasons, basically. <laughs> and it was a real argument because in the beginning they told me I could get two minutes. And then they tried to tell me I could only get one and a half. And I'd already started working on the act and stuff. So I was like, no, no, you've told me two minutes. It's here in an email. I'm going to use two minutes. And they were like, no, no, you can only have one and a half. And I was like, look, I, I, I'll just leave. I can't, you know, I need two minutes. And they were like, 140? And I was like, 155. 145? 154? 150? 153. It's a deal. It was that kind of thing. Arguing about seconds. And they were like, you can have 153, but then you have to start on stage and finish on stage. You don't have time to do a walk-on. <laughs> like, <clears throat> it's basically like that. The other acts, I, I fill them with stuff. I, that's kind of my style. I like to fill all the time I have with material. I don't like to keep the audience waiting in any way. I just like to, oh, there's, there's, there's five extra seconds here. Then I'll do one more trick. Like, that's kind of my, the way I think about it. I, like, like, I just squeeze in way too much stuff. So was it first round quarter semis and final is was that the root and the structure of it yes but i didn't have to do the first round i got out of that because like often that's like the basic audition thing uh and if you're in kind of a solid performer you can argue your ways so you don't even have to do that and at least in sweden you could at that time and how did it feel because you were the, the first ever magician to win a got talent series how did that feel it was quite shocking i didn't definitely didn't think i was gonna win so that was astounding and i think it was i was the only magician to have won it for many years it's only quite recently that someone else won it now there's been two i think one american one in america and one in the uk right yeah that sounds right the the american guy's name is wasn't matt franco was it i don't know i don't i I never watch stuff i don't know what happens on tv with magic or on youtube i don't really follow anything so sometimes i don't like people talk about Something that they've seen. I have no clue. Yeah, and then I think we had the, the guy in the UK a few years ago. Well, what what did come out of Sweden's Got Talent for you then? Was it the six the six dream jobs of the year and being paid to come back and visit your parents, or, or did a lot more? I know for it. You mentioned the the tour. I, I was offered to do a, a tour for. I, I had a producer. I got a producer, and we set up a tour through through Sweden, playing pretty big theaters, five six hundred seaters, and I did a big tour, and I basically. St- Stayed in Sweden for two years. And then I got really tired of it. it was, I got really bored. Sweden is a very small duck pond. And it wasn't interesting. I wasn't seeing any shows that inspired me. All my friends were still touring street performers, basically. So, And I, I basically just decided to stop performing in Sweden. Not completely, essentially. And, and start traveling again. And was it about this time that you did... Because um, there's a great video on online, which I will encourage people to look at which is the uh, it was for the stockholm the city of stockholm you must know the video I oh mean. the ipad thing no no oh, the card trick the card trick yeah yeah that came a little bit later me and and my friend eric rosales from circus alfon that do incredible high-tech shows we did a project together with ipads for stockholm that became very successful and then the year after we were offered to do another one that also became really successful and then we started turning them down because the expectations got so high that we couldn't... It was almost impossible to do anything for them. Like, I ended up doing a card trick about Stockholm that was that became really 
successful as well, viral. And Stephen Fry tweeted about it, which was very... I, I really like Stephen Fry, so that was a big, big thing for me. It's funny you mentioned that, because at that time I didn't follow you on Twitter, but I did follow Stephen Fry and I saw he oh, really? retweeted it, and that's when I first watched it. No one follows me on Twitter. I don't really have Twitter. I am Charlie Caper on Twitter, I think, but I do believe I have written two tweets in the last eight years or something like this. So talk, talk to me a bit more about your use of technology with your magic, with, with the iPads, and, and we'll, we'll talk about robots in a moment, but we should probably separate the two as a, I'm sure there's a lot of depth we can go into on both things. Yeah, so I, I was a computer programmer, a decently good one. I know some great computer programmers, so I also know the difference, but I was a good one, although I'm, I'm worth about a tenth of a great one. I've always been really interested in technology. My character with, with, with my street show, like the Charlie Cable character, is extremely anachronistic. So none of these items fit in his world. So I really had no outlet for these things. So then it was really fun to do the iPad act with Eric because I kind of did that as another character in a way. And that kind of opened a dam, I think, that I could do stuff with technology that now has been completely shat. Like, yeah, it's, it's gone way... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's become quite ridiculous how much I use technology now. And now I've, I've really gotten into this sort of maker world. And me and Eric have a, an amazing workshop in Stockholm in, a, in an innovation hub called Epicenter, which is this crazy place where lots of big companies and small ones have their innovation departments. And there's like a thousand people in this open office space that all have implanted microchips and... Uh, you know, you'll 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 have lunch, and the, you'll start talking with someone in the lunch queue, and and you're like, "What are you doing here?" Oh, I'm doing a little talk. I'm I'm a particle physicist at CERN, or whatever. Like it's this kind of place where, so it's really it's really fascinating to be there. And we have these rooms in the basement where we have a pretty serious workshop with. We have a bunch of three D printers. Uh, one of them that I made that only prints stuff out of chocolate. Maybe I should not say this online, but it's kind of a scam, so I can now tax deduct chocolate on my company. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have a bunch of electronics and like an insane library of components for building stuff and um, lots of robotics parts and a CNC router we can make stuff out of aluminum and wood and plastics and and you're obviously not just developing these things for entertainment what are some of the sort of companies and people that you're you work with on these that's not exactly true i basically do make everything for entertainment <laughs> but a lot of the things i build i build just because i'm interested i don't make it with necessarily the idea that i'm going to use it in a show i just kind of go i wonder if i can make something that does this uh so like the whole system that's used in this new show that i done here in edinburgh I basically started building it just to to explore the technology and see what I could use it for or if it would work. So I'm very driven nowadays by kind of just doing stuff I think is fun and interesting. Talk to me a little bit more about the show that you've just closed with here in Edinburgh. How many robots are in and kind of what... Obviously, I don't want you to give too much away for people that will hopefully see the show yeah. at a later date, but kind of paint us a picture of what that show looks like. So how many robots... It, it depends a little bit on your definition of robot, but I would say there's between 10 and 15 robots in the show. And I designed all of them except for one myself, completely built them myself, programmed everything myself. Most of the stuff is designed in CAD programs and then 3D printed. Just started playing around with interesting ideas. 
And uh, there's actually a couple of robots that are that are here, but they're not in the show. Uh, like this thing, wait, it's here. <laughs> this is going in the show at some point. <laughs> so Charlie's now holding an arm. An exact uh, robot copy of my own arm. Wow. Like it's the same size, it's very... Um, so what's the what's the plans for this, Charlie? It, currently, it's a is it a plastic arm? It's oh, got moving. wires hanging out the bottom of it. Yeah. Well, the plan is uh, for this is I'm not sure exactly. Um, I I brought it to do, work at an act, but I've been, I've been so busy here that I haven't had time to work it through. But this is quite beautifully designed, if I may say so myself. And I think the idea is to do it like a weird dancey, mimey act with it. Like, it's going to be a very slow, artsy act. And, and then it's just a creepy item because it can behave exactly like a hand, like an arm. Like, it's very... Yeah. Uh, that's a full-size uh, full arm that yeah. you, you've just shown there. Like a replica of a human arm. The, the robots you use in the show, they're, they're quite small, are they? And kind of... How do the sizes vary? There's one that's the size of a human torso. There's a fairly big robotic arm, like not a human, not a human arm, but like a, a robot arm, kind of industrial type robot arm for small industrial applications. And then the smallest robots are about the size of a, how would you say, about the size of a f football or smaller, like the size of a small football. Yeah. And in what way do, do the robotics and the magic work together? I've tried to really integrate it. So in some instances, the robot is doing, the robots are doing the magic. In some instances, they are sort of facilitating the magic or the magic is done to them or with them. And then I also try to tell a story in the show. And that's been really interesting because the robots enable me to explore story in a way that you can only do if you're several actors on stage. And it's been really interesting to have now things can happen that are not within my control, which is fascinating to play with. Uh, I wonder, how, how does the audience reaction differ between maybe you vanishing a ball and it appearing under a cup or your bow tie coming back having vanished and a, a robot do, doing magic? Do, do you find the audience respond differently to those things or are they, they as impressed to see these things happen? Right now I would say they respond a bit less. <laughs> But I think that's because I haven't explored it properly yet, the space that I'm moving in. So I think they will respond as, as well, or, or maybe even better in some instances. And what's the narrative like to this show? Because it, it, it's not so much a parade of, of magic and robots. There's, there's story to it as well. Yeah, which is not so pronounced at this point. I've played the show now. When I came here, it took me two weeks to get the show sort of working. It's been a lot of work, uh, crazy amounts of work. Like the two months before coming here, I was up until four at night every day, basically working. So I'm really going to explore the story more. But there is a story, a fairly simple story at the core of this show. And I feel like it's, be, it's, really, it's being really nicely integrated into the show. So I'm very happy with that. And there'll be performers listening to, to this who will think... Oh, it takes me 20 minutes to get all my pockets ready to go and do some close-up. Or there might be a juggler listening and thinking it takes me all this time to get all my, my balls and my clubs and, and, and this ready. Yeah. What's your setup like for this show? It's pretty daunting, surely. Yeah, every day for this show 
if we start when when I come home, oh, from when I come home from the show, I've been dragging 50 kilos here, and then I've got to start charging things that are on batteries. So I put the first round of charging things on, and then I have to go through the props and see if anything is broken and maybe solder something, do some fix, fixing things. And then the next morning I have to do another round of charging. And then in the early afternoon, I start the third round of charging of things. And I really, if I don't have charging discipline, then it's really bad. So I've, um, I've been, so I do that. And then there's a point when I have to do about an hour of prep here in the apartment. And then I take everything down to the, then I drag the 50 kilos down to the liquid rooms where I've been performing. What an amazing, beautiful bar, by the way. Yeah, really lovely staff. And, uh, Best in Edinburgh. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then I've, um, so, and I would usually get there just before um, Stuart Goldsmith's show, which was before me. And then I set up during his whole show for an hour in a real hurry. Then when he finishes, I set up for another 20 minutes, putting all the stuff up on the stage and stuff. Yeah. And that's for an hour long show. That's for a 45 minute long show. Again, um, comparing yourself and, the, and this show and the, the production behind it to other performers a juggler may occasionally drop a ball a magician may occasionally force the wrong card how often does the technology fail i'm really happy it hasn't failed big at all or bigly to use uh, one of these newfangled words <laughs> it hasn't failed bigly at all uh, only real time i had a real problem technique with it technically was uh, when the, the robot arm wasn't working. And I, I think that was the problem with the power supply, that it wasn't providing enough power. So I, th- I threw it away, and, and since then it's been working really well. And apart from that, everything has been working real smooth, which kind of shocks me. I had a spare show on the side as well, pretty much every day, <laughs> in case things didn't work. I had another show I could do. But um, yeah, it's been working really well, and I think... A lot of performers are really afraid of using like remote controller electronics in a show. That's because if you do something, it's very often just RC car shit that you're working with. And you can't really trust that kind of stuff because I built everything myself. It's like industrial strength protocols and technologies used in heavy industry to control machinery and stuff. So I've, I've kind of gone down a route where it feels pretty fail-safe. Uh, and actually, when I take this show further and start playing real theaters where people have bought an expensive ticket and show up, and then I will have really have spares for everything. I want to talk about fringe festivals and the ones I know you, you go to most years, but you kind of just mentioned touring this, so I'm keen to kind of find out what your plans are with that. Are we, are we looking at... Um, hopefully a world tour are there certain countries you kind of know that you can work well in I have no idea I'm taking it to Adelaide Fringe that's what I know and then I I can see it playing anywhere really so I reckon I'm going to get a producer and see if they can put the show in various situations and it's basically turning into a play the show so I think I will be able to take it to a lot of places where a magic show can't play Uh, like in real kind of fine arts theatre situations I can see the show playing as well 
the number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. What an interesting interview so far. What I really love about Charlie is he's so talented. He's achieved so many things, but he's so chilled and relaxed about, yes, you know, I did this and this happened and what a career so far. The, the interview really is really going to be fantastic. The rest of it, I've obviously listened to it. I'm going to enjoy this a lot. But do us a favour, help this podcast grow. Share this episode around if you enjoyed it say lovely things about it we're on on twitter facebook instagram cane able magic on all of those things help other people get to know this podcast and obviously give us a nice little rating rate review and subscribe we've currently got a five star rating on itunes so that's very nice and there's lots of love going on on Podbean. so if you've enjoyed this episode do something lovely share it around and also you know listen back to the Paul Beck, Griffin and Jones and Halloween special with Harry Houdini if you haven't done that so far but for now let's get back into it with Charlie Caper Hi I'm Alex Opal come visit us at opal.co.uk to find your next prop What is it about the Edinburgh Festival Fringe that the keeps you coming back and how many years have you been coming yourself? My first year was 2005 and I've been here most years since then. I've missed a couple and then there's a couple of years when I've been here for a week visiting like last year I came I dropped in for a week and then left I was in Germany but I really love the wildness of the Edinburgh French you can see crazy things you can you see stuff that you don't see anywhere else and you get really you often see and every Edinburgh there's a couple of things you see that are really incredible and that will inspire you for years to come um, just not necessarily in their subject matter or anything but just by the sheer fact that it's so good uh, you you kind of get this shock of like oh shit it's possible to be this good oh man I've got to go home and work <laughs> like if I want to keep up with this, I have to step on the gas. Like It may not be this year, but I, I wonder when was the, the last time you saw a show that really blew you away? It normally happens once a year. This time, there hasn't been one that really did it, I think. Uh, I really liked a show called uh, Famous Puppet Death Scenes. Really enjoyed that. Uh, that. That's the best thing I've seen this year, I think. Really, really funny. Puppet shows quite often... Is are my favorite shows. There's a puppet show called Bruce that was here last year, and it was I saw it in Adelaide as well, the year before that, and that show really blows me away. I watched it several times now, and every time it it's so well written, whole, so well written and so well performed. Bruce, it's a puppet show. Have you seen um, Boris and Sergey before? Uh, yes, I have. They're amazing. Yeah, I really like Boris and Sergey. Oh, Neil um, Portensa's show this year was fantastic. Have you seen it? No. Oh, gosh, you have to. It's really funny. It's, he's kind of doing a magic show. Okay. An absurdist comedian kind of doing a magic show. And he's so unpredictable and entertaining that it's some of the most entertaining magic I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of magic. What are the, some of the key differences that you see between the Edinburgh and, and the Adelaide festivals? I love them both for very different reasons, I think. I would say the main differences are that Edinburgh is much bigger. There's stuff going on all day. In Adelaide, it feels like things start at six. In Adelaide, there's much less desperation. And there's much fewer really bad shows. 
in Edinburgh, there's a lot of shows that are not very good. And I think those shows basically only go to Edinburgh. So they don't really go to Adelaide. So, the, yeah, there's different aspects. Like, it feels like the best third of the shows in Edinburgh are the shows that then go to Adelaide, kind of. And, uh, yeah, I love about Adelaide that it's warm and and summer and you get away from the Swedish dark winter when you have, like, an hour of daylight every day and then it's just pitch black darkness because that's not healthy. I'm keen to, to talk about your involvement in the magic community you've entered and won quite a lot of awards i kind of wanted to get your understanding about why you kind of enter those sorts of competitions and just kind of talk us through some of the things you have won i have only entered them by accident really or or not by accident but by circumstance like i when i was preparing one act for sweden's got talent i saw that the swedish championships of magic was like three weeks before and i thought if i register for that and I do this act there, then I will have like a pre-deadline that's that's two or three weeks before my actual deadline. And then, so I can do that, and then I can get some feedback from people that sees and watches me there, and then it'll be much better when it's done. So I registered for this Swedish Championships, uh, and then I won that. And then they asked me if I wanted to go to FISM, which is the World Championship of Magic. And it's, that's only once every three years. And then I kind of thought, you don't then how often do you end up doing this I, I might never compete in FISM if I don't do it now so what the heck I'll do it so that's how I ended up in FISM and I won a silver medal there well, and yeah. which, which FISM was that that was the FISM in Beijing 2009 and what what category were you, were you competing in I was in parlor magic how did you find that whole experience did you kind of go in quite relaxed and it was just sort of uh, i'll do it or were you kind of really wanting to win and get that recognition i i was quite relaxed i think yeah and i hadn't put that much time into it because i'd just been doing the sweden's got talent thing pretty seriously so i i basically just thought I'll, I'll enjoy it for what it is kind of if i ever did it again now i would really go in it to win it and try to if i, I would only do that if i if i find myself having an act where I'm like, oh, this would be perfect for FISM, and then I would take it there. Otherwise, I don't think I would spend time. Looking further ahead, I wonder what are some of your your aims and ambitions for, for your career in the future? I don't think I have any career ambitions or aims, really. I just want to do nice shows. I just want to do stuff that I think is good. I want to create things that I would like to see myself, which is sadly quite lacking in the magic world. It feels like... There's so much going on in the last few years. There's so much more interesting things that's popping up. But magic has really been stuck in, stuck in a stagnation for, for, many, for a long, long time. Yeah, I think it's quite easy to do a little in magic and get a big response to it as opposed to, to doing a lot and, and, and you know, getting the same response. Yeah, yeah. I want to see magic being a, a functional art form not just a potential art form, but an actual art form. How do you see us achieving that? Just that people realize that you can actually go somewhere with doing things that are interesting, not just strong. Uh, it feels like for so long it's been a reigning paradigm in magic that it, the only important thing is that you do strong material. It doesn't matter if you wrote it yourself. doesn't matter if you created it yourself. doesn't matter if other magicians have seen that same thing a thousand times. That's been the reigning paradigm. And it's so damn boring. 
I mean, if you go to any country, the 10 main corporate magicians will be doing basically the same show as each other. It's stupid. Like, it really is. It doesn't have to be that way. I think there, it's, if you create original material, you can really get booked a lot with it. There is definitely a, a space and a market for it. Um, and I think people just have to realize that. Whenever a friend of mine has seen a magician at, let's say, a corporate close-up do, they, they've done the Omnideck at least. And... Yeah. Um, that's the one thing they all remember and I think it can often be easy for people to go out with stuff that they they know works whereas often I find you know with with Ed and I doing everything as a double act you kind of have to at least develop things and we have a routine we do that we love and it's the one thing we'll do if if asked in a close-up situation to do but the first you know 20 gigs we did it the response was just nowhere near what we wanted because it took that long to yeah. work out the beats to it and to work out the best way to reveal certain things. And I think occasionally people are, uh, they don't want to put the struggle in to, to get the games. Yeah. Uh, with, well, with this robot show, I know I would have made far more money this year if I had just done my old street show on the same stage. I know this. It would have been far less work. I would have had time to enjoy myself. I would have time to have dinner with my friends. I would have time to see more things. But I also know that this robot show, I'm going to be touring it probably for five or six years around the world as much as I want because it's, it's, it's going to be original. And it's going to take me probably another year of semi-hard work to get the show to be really good. Definitely, I'm going to get there. And it's probably going to be better than anything else I've ever done. Uh, so I'm very excited about it. And you sort of have to take that sort of temporary drop in what you're doing to, for, to be able to go further as an artist. And that's a great, great lesson for anyone actually that's trying to develop as a performer or really stamp their own um, personality on something that they're doing. You know, mm. you do have to take that, that sacrifice. You have to take risks. Risk. Yeah, you have to take risks and you have to accept that if you're not, like, I mean, if you were a band, would you really want to play covers for the rest of your life? Just stand there and play Creedence Clearwater Revival? Like, how long can you do that? Yeah, you do it for three years to learn something about being on stage and playing your instrument. But there's a point when you should go, okay, I, I, now I want to express myself, not someone else. A couple of quick fire questions really to finish off with you, Charlie. Um, who are some of your, your favorite performers to watch or who have inspired your career? Uh, favorite performers to watch? If I start with magicians... I, the musicians that have always inspired me, I guess, have been Tommy Wonder a lot, early Tommy Wonder, uh, or uh, like his books are incredible and all his work is incredible. And the, his, the fact he never compromised, very kind of has a vision and goes with it. I really respect that. I, uh, I really like Penn and Teller. They were really good at bringing subject matter, like different, having some sort of subject matter into their show which is great. There's a show that really affected me called The Elephant Room that played here a couple of years ago. It was a fantastic American show, which is kind of a magic show. Really, really great. Right now, I'm quite inspired by different writers and TV shows. For, for this show, I'm quite inspired by Rick and Morty, which is really amazingly well-written. I'm inspired by uh, Joseph Heller in Catch-22, Orwell quite a lot. I'm very inspired by when it comes to performers on stage. I don't know, really, like so many people I like, but I guess Harry Anderson's kind of feel to him I really enjoyed. It's really 
funny and beautiful. I like I like performances that aren't shouty. I like subdued, underplayed things. I want to do a cabaret here next year. I've seen so many loud acts that I've disliked this fringe that I want to do a cabaret next year called The Quiet Cabaret with only quiet acts. That would be brilliant. Yeah, I think, I think it's necessary. I like um, George Carl, obviously. It's hard to know who I, who I like and who I'm inspired by, actually. It's tricky. Um, but yeah, right now I think I'm more inspired by, by writing of things. I read a lot of books about writing nowadays. And with regard to, to technology, I wonder if there's any kind of innovators in that field that has particularly inspired the work you do. When it comes to like prefer using technology on stage, not really. The iPad Act was, was heavily inspired by the work of uh, Marco Tempest, who's a really amazing high-tech magician. But since then, there's really no one to look at. There's not a lot of interesting work being done, I think. Not that I've seen anyway, but I all also don't look so much on the internet. So I just try to just plod my own path. In that case, it would be Circus Alphon, of which I work with the sort of lead character in all the time in my workshop. Uh, but they do interesting stuff with technology. I see something and then I go, maybe, maybe I can build a robot of this, or maybe it's... There's two things that I, I made in a note that I wanted to ask you about. So I'll quickly ask you about those yeah. and, and we'll call it day. The one thing I wanted to kind of get an understanding with whenever I've seen you perform, you're a solo performer, and I, I kind of wondered what your experience was like when you worked as part of La Soiree. I never did acts in La Soiree. I've been the, the ringmaster. So my experience was, I was mainly trying to emulate Brett, who is the, the regular ringmaster and the producer of the show. He's worked by far the hardest in the whole show, so it was quite a lot of work. But um, I found it incredibly inspiring because that show has some of the greatest variety acts in the world. It's, they're so amazing, all of, the, all of the acts that are in there. I spent a lot of time just standing, watching them in between doing announcements and stuff. And there's some shows that I, some acts that I would watch every night, a hundred shows in a row kind of thing. Who were, who were some of the acts in at that time? Basically the same great acts throughout the whole time. But Captain Frodo, I really love watching. Ursula Martinez is an incredible performer and super smart. She's really good to discuss performing with the English gents, uh, fantastic, really great at exp being funny. Yeah, they're really amazing. Really like Misbehave, Amy. And her new weird game show is incredibly funny. It's playing in Vegas now, apparently. She's, it's really great. Mario, Queen of the Circus, they're inspiring. He's perhaps the best person I know in the world at writing comedy for his, that only his character could ever say like it's very personal very specific comedy it's really great i'm gonna feel bad now for the people i forget but yeah i can't just line up everyone <laughs> we can add them in later if need be a uh, final question for you charlie this might take us full circle or, or this might be something completely new but right. i'm very keen to get people reading as much as possible and i mm -hmm. wonder if you if you had one magic book you would encourage people to read and, and you felt performers would benefit from what it would be i would definitely say books of wonder i really love those books they're great super charlie thank you very much yeah, cheers